Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. IBM has purchased Red Hat, and it is the largest software transaction in history, and it is of an open source software company, and that is huge. So throughout the course of the hour, we are going to dive into this, and I have spent every waking hour since this news broke processing it, talking to people all throughout Red Hat at all different levels. And I am going to do the best I can to explain the situation, explain why it happened, talk to you about the pros and the cons, and what I'm hearing both from the community inside of Red Hat and outside of Red Hat. Of course, we join you to be a part of that discussion at 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624 or in our interactive Mumble room at mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. We go now to the phones, 855-450-NOAA. You're on Ask Noah. What's on your mind? Hi, Noah. How are you? Excellent. How are you, sir? Good. Uh, my name is John. I'm calling from Toronto. Hey, John. Uh, so my question is uh, this evening. First of all, I want to say how much I am uh, enjoying your um, special episode. So I want to get that in there first. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and my question this evening is uh, in regards to um, you know archiving um, uh, photos and videos uh, of my daughter. Um, so basically, I've been archiving them on blank media, and yes. Uh, you know, I know that may not be the greatest idea, but, you know, due to privacy reasons, um, you know, I don't want to store them on the cloud. And I wanted to ask uh, if I don't want to go to some type of, like, free NAS server option, um, and, you know, is my really best option at that point is to back them up onto some type of solid-state drive. Is that my best option at this point? You Actually, I think you might have more options than you think. So is your primary concern privacy? Uh, well, privacy, and, and of course, I know that when, you know backing them on backing them up on blank media, you know they're only going to you know archive for X number of years, right? So my question to you is, uh, if I don't want to do it on the cloud, and I have concerns about how long they'll last on blank media, is my only option to go to solid state drive? That, that's my question. Okay, so I guess I, so. I guess we'll start with let's have a technical discussion first. So the first thing is that it is it is a misnomer or it is a incorrect belief to believe that a solid state media is more reliable than um, spinning disk. In fact, all of the information that we have to date indicates that for long term storage, a spinning disk is actually more reliable than uh, solid state. Now, where that and I, and I want to give you another disclaimer. The other thing that we have seen here at Alta Speed Technologies is I have been told time and time again. 
A solid state disk fails to read only state. A solid state disk fails to read only state. A solid. I, I've heard that more times. It may. I, if I hear it again, I'll throw up. The truth is, and I have seen this firsthand. Every single time we have seen an SSD fail, they they fail completely. And I've never had one fail to a read only state to where I was able to recover data off of it. It just up and like dies in smoke. So I I don't have any. The the first thing is is verifiable data that you can look up online. The second thing is that uh, and see we're getting in the chat room. Also more recoverable. Oh oh more recoverable than an SSD. Um, the the first part about um, spinning disks being a more reliable form of of long term storage that's verifiable. I mean you know googling and, and looking at various different review sites will it will give you the same information I'm giving you. Now the second part of that of the SSDs they do not fail to a read only state. That's my personal opinion based on seven years the last seven years of troubleshooting SSDs. Um, but so take it for what it's worth. So if if so. Given all of that information, if what you're asking is what's the best medium for you to back uh, data up on, you know, for, for archiving purposes, uh, between an SSD and a solid and a spinning disk, I would tell you to go with the spinning disk. Now, if I can add one more thing into that mix, the uh, first, I guess, first of all, does that answer your question as you asked it? Uh, yes, partly, but I, I guess the other... You know, the other question, part of the question was, you know, that I that I have backed it up onto like, you know, like blank, you know, DVD, DVD-R media, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, is that necessarily a good idea in terms of how long that, you know, that that backup will be accessible on, you know, DVD, you know, minus or plus or blank media. Sure. So, um, so the answer to that question is that optical media does degrade over time. And so uh, you would just a, like a regular DVD or, you know, a regular CD uh, writable um, would probably not be, again, would not be my first choice for long-term archivable backup. Now, that said, what I was going to add into the mix was, um, in addition to the, the two hard drive options, what I would actually use if I wanted a completely offline, in fact, what I do use, uh, when I want a completely offline archivable media is I use special Blu-rays that are specifically designed for archiving purposes, and of course we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Now they're not—they're not, they're not uh, terribly cheap. Um, they do cost a little bit of money, um, but that's what I would do if I wanted to store them offline. Okay. I, I will just give you a plug, and right. that answers your question, though. Yes. Yes. Cool, cool. Thanks for the call. I, I do want to point out, I'll just let you know, and not that you asked for it, it's a piece of unsolicited information, but I'm going to say it anyway, because my name's still in the title of the show and I can do that. Um, when I look at backing up data, oftentimes what I will do, I'm not a proponent of the cloud, but I am a proponent of utilizing technology to accomplish a given goal. And so if my given goal is information that is just needs to remain private, my social security number, banking information, those kinds of things, I'm perfectly fine trusting that to an encryption algorithm that I tr that I trust. So if I can encrypt something with Lux and uh, then send it over HTTPS in addition to another encryption algorithm written by the folks at, for example, C-File, I'm perfectly comfortable storing my data there. One step removed from that, I also wouldn't be entirely against using a cloud provider like SpiderOak, again, Assuming privacy wasn't paramount. If privacy is paramount, I like your decision better. So keep it offline. But if privacy is not paramount, 
you may consider moving to something like uh, like Spider Oak and encrypting your data. Again, you too can join the conversation, 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. IBM bought Red Hat. The entire internet has lost its freaking mind over this. And on one hand, I do understand. I understand that there is a lot of fear and there is a lot of shock coming from the inside of Red Hat. Because what you have to understand about Red Hat, and I do because I have been there multiple times, and I have very close friends that continue to work at Red Hat and are deeply involved with Red Hat and Red Hat's operations. What you have to understand is they are a culture-first company. Culture is everything to Red Hat. And they're very proud of the fact that they are one of the best places, not just in the North Carolina area, but they are one of the best places in the world to work. Employees are proud to work at Red Hat. Employees are proud to wear Red Hat shirts. When I got my first Red Hat polo as just because I like Red Hat, I was proud to wear that thing. Every piece of Red Hat material that I have, I'm proud to own because their culture inspires that. And so when they learned that a company, which quite frankly has a history of poor culture, has purchased them, there was a lot of fear and shock. The other thing I think plays into it is when you notice when Red Hat acquires other, I don't know, I don't want to say businesses, but other projects, they suck them up into their ecosystem. Not in a bad way, but they just put resources behind them and they show them what years and years and years of working on a open source model have taught them and they then teach those lessons to the people that they acquire. And I think there was a real concern inside of Red Hat. Hey, is IBM going to do that to us? Except now, instead of advocating for open source and openness and pushing upstream, are they going to advocate for issuing corporate you know, issued Windows laptops? Are they going to advocate for their working models? I initially reacted very positively to this news. And I reacted very positively for a couple of reasons. The first reason is I almost unilaterally without question trust Red Hat and every decision they make. And I have gone on the record numerous times to say, if it's okay with Red Hat, it's okay by me. Now, part of that is because I have such an intimate look into their company and into their company's culture. So I understand the thought processes that occur. And until you can see that, it's not something I can explain to you in a one-hour radio show. It's not something that I can type a blog post about and you can read it. It's not even something that if you meet them on the street, you'll understand. It's something that you have to experience over a long period of time. And I have had that opportunity. I'm thankful for that opportunity. I saw this as a positive decision because IBM has massive, massive, massive market. The name IBM, even today, even 10 years later, 10 years removed after when they have had significant business prominence where, where you would walk into any small clinic or any law office and it was IBM and everything else. There's an old saying, nobody ever got fired for... Not for, for using IBM or for recommending IBM. Red Hat has that same relationship with its customers. But IBM has such deep pockets and they have such deep senior level relationships with 
every major company that it's almost like taking Red Hat, which is doing amazing things, but they don't really have the pocketbooks and the platform to really push them out at a massive, massive level. And it's like IBM reaching down, grabbing hold of these guys and saying, you're doing a great thing. Let us elevate you way up, way, way up and push your agenda forward because we believe in what you're doing. And I think this is the message that IBM is trying to send. And I think this is the message that Red Hat received and why they are, at least the leadership team inside of Red Hat is so open to this. You look at the CEO of IBM. She is a huge believer in open source and a huge user of open source. And there is a common goal, a common business goal, even if you get away from the community, even if you even if you step away for just a second from the culture and the community and you just look at the business decision and just look at where the dollars lie. Being a cloud provider, a hybrid cloud provider is everything and everybody is trying to get there. Red Hat has the model to make that work. IBM has the relationships and the pocketbooks to make that work. What IBM lacks are the dedicated engineers who they don't develop software because they collect a paycheck. No, those guys develop software because it's a passion. It's a deep-seated belief. It's the exact same belief to every each and every one of you listeners that tune into this radio show every single week and listen to me because you feel that passion. You feel how much we care about Linux and open source and how much we value the people and connections that are there. That is Red Hat. And so what this relationship does, it allows a company who has that passion to get the backing that they need and to introduce them to the relationships they, that they need to become the number one hybrid cloud provider in the world. You can't grow unless something is moved. Nothing is moved unless it's shoved. And when something is shoved, it creates friction. So there is going to be problems. There is going to be friction. I have no doubt about that. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, and I'm definitely not a developer, and I don't have a lot of the insight into the, into the very deep technical stuff that a lot of other people do. But what I am is a student of the community, and I have been a student of the community for so long, involved in community events and talking to these people and learning. And I've always felt I had two ears and two eyes and one mouth, which means I should be hearing and seeing twice as much as I'm saying. So what you get on this show every single week is a very condensed, brief overview of what I collect throughout the, the weeks and months prep leading up to the show. And that's not to toot my own horn. But the point here is that IBM and Red Hat have a common goal in mind, and I can see that. And being deeply involved with Red Hat and seeing how they work, I completely understand why they are supporting this decision and why they are moving forward, or at least trying to. Now, it's not to say that there aren't some cons. I get that there are some drawbacks, and we're going to get to those as the show goes on. You too can add your voice to the conversation, one 855 noah That's 855-450-6624, or join us in our mumble room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. David joins us in New York. Hey, David, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, Noah. This, uh, it's great to be here. I've uh, been a Jupiter listener since, uh, well, since uh, Brian Lundy's day, so it's, uh, it's great to uh, finally be uh, talk to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. How can we help? 
So I'm, I'm trying to reevaluate my VPS choices. Uh, I've been using DigitalOcean for a while to run an own cloud server for like the last four years. Okay. And it's running on 1404, uh, and I'm trying to figure out their best. So I'm considering on migrating it right now. Um, but I was thinking about in block storage, but I only get uh, 100 gigs for 10 bucks a month, which is you know a pretty hefty price considering the, the the different storage options. So I was wondering if you knew like a good VPS that had a good sort of like dollar to gigabyte ratio. Um, because right now I'm just I'm trying to find the best place that's a little a little cheaper than DigitalOcean, and I don't need the speed of DigitalOcean. I don't need FTP back. Do you want the AltaSpeed Technologies proper technical solution answer, or do you want the backwards, hey, buddy, you want, you want to buy some storage answer? Because I, I, have, I have two. Um, I'll take both. Okay, well, that is option three. Uh, so the AltaSpeed um, proper here's your technical solution answer is uh, OVH. OVH, or their sister company, Kim Sufi, has some of the cheapest servers available. I think you can get a one terabyte server for 29 bucks a month. And uh, we've used them for C-file instances, and I got to tell you, their uptime is fantastic. Their management is meh, okay. But um, as far as bandwidth and storage and all of those things, it works great. So for $29 a month, you're going to be hard-pressed to beat that for dedicated storage on, uh, you know, of a terabyte or more. Oh, wow, that's great. So that that's the proper answer. Here's the backwoods. Hey, man, do you, do you want to buy some storage? Um Turns out, if you sign up for a, uh, for, <laughs> can't believe I'm about to recommend this, but it's the, you're asking the question, I'm going to give you the honest answer. Turns out, if you sign up for a G Suite account, which is $10 a month, so roughly 100 bucks a year, um, they have unlimited storage. So, <laughs> and there may or may not be scripts that exist that will allow you to write to a Google Drive from your, um, from, from, a, from like a Linux uh, file system. And so I could confirm or deny that you would oh, be using, uh, using the Fuse file system. Exactly. So I, I, I would not be able to confirm or deny that I may or may not have spun up a droplet at one point and may or may not have signed up for a G Suite account and may or may not be storing tens of terabytes of storage on, on Google. <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, hypothetically speaking, if we were going to you know, go down that road, I, I might suggest that you look into that. Okay, I'll, I'll, that's good to know both solutions. Um, is, is encryption possible? Because uh, yes. privacy is my main concern. Otherwise, I'd just be going with Dropbox. Yes, although uh, I, I will tell you, I, I yes, yes, encryption is possible, and yes, you can do that. However, anybody out there in the chat room is already catching on. They're like, oh, I sold out. No, I don't store any of my data. I just store data that I want access to. It originated somewhere else. You use your imagination what that might be. But it, it, data that's, that originated somewhere else, and I want to store it somewhere, and I need massive amounts of storage for that, then you know something like that might work. Again, hypothetically speaking. But, of course, the problem with this whole hypothetical situation is it's against the Google Terms of Service. So, of course, I've never done that. Nope, I've never heard you talk about it. Right, exactly. Not especially not in the air. Never, never. Thanks. <laughs> cool. Uh, I have one other short question. Yeah, please. If, if you if you have time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I'm I'm hoping to spin back up my desktop as a home server. I uh, I live in Manhattan, and uh, we we downsized my apartment, and uh, no longer space for a proper desktop setup with a monitor and keyboard. So I'm hoping to go headless. And uh, so I was hoping to have a little headless server that runs Proton and Docker containers to kind of you know be able to do whatever I want to to kind of play with different projects, but also be able to still have a gaming PC I can play with. Um, so I was 
trying to figure out what the right distro was. Um, I've been kind of split between CentOS because, you know, you install it once and you never think about it ever again. Exactly. Well, I mean, obviously you maintain it, but you don't have to, like, update it. Uh, Fedora for something kind of a little more up-to-date, but still giving, you know, sub-ETL and all that stuff. And Ubuntu, but I really don't want to reinstall it every three years. Yeah. Uh, two years, sorry, for the LTSs. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, my thoughts are every virtual server I have is running on top of CentOS. Um, for one, because they have appliance to sized if i can if i'm if i'm going to coin a term actually i'm going to steal it from our guest from uh, saturday night but the um they they made into an appliance a virtual host and uh, so when you install centos you literally get an option that says i want to use this as a as a as a as a virtual host you click on that button and click install and it just spits out a virtual host so it's super straightforward and simple and like you said a 10 year runtime for a centos server is not uncommon so it's a really really great way to go Okay, great. Now I'll have to play with that. I, and I know you can install the NVIDIA drivers, so I should be able to get get uh, Steam and Proton running without a problem. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, so, great. yeah, so I much. guess. I really appreciate you taking my call. Yeah, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. I guess, you know, with the gaming stuff in there, the other thing to consider is probably the leader in virtualizing Linux uh, for gaming is probably my good friend Wendell Wilson from uh, Level 1 Techs. And um, I know he's doing a lot of his stuff on Ubuntu. So that might be another reason to go with Ubuntu, especially because that's what Steam is supporting and stuff like that. But we're going to have Wendell on in um, soon, sooner rather than later, hopefully. I have to get together and schedule some stuff with him. But um, we'll ask him, and uh, and we'll get the answer back for you. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. John from Texas joins us. Hey, John, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? Thank you for taking my call. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here. <laughs> I have a quick question. Because I've been trying to find out and doing my research. You know how, like, Google has a remote desktop uh, capability that they can access remote other computers? Yes. They have troubleshooting, whatnot, and, and there's VNC. But I'm trying to find an easier way for a user to just, for example, there's five computers. And then one computer can access all five. I want it to be like PC one, PC two. It's like a button or something that you just click PC one. You know, just remote into that computer. Mm -hmm. I'm just because the because the user is going to be like they're, they're not really tacky, tech savvy. You know, they're just average people. You know, they don't have to yep. put in the password and IP address, and they don't know how to do that. <laughs> is there a software or anything out there that can do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of X2Go uh, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is with X2Go is it's like you said, you literally get shortcuts. And so inside of the X2Go client, it'll say computer one, computer two, computer three. You can also save environment variables for those shortcuts, which I find to be very helpful. For example, I want this computer because it has a screen resolution of 1024 by 768 to be inside of a little mini window. And that allows me to remote control it and multitask because I've got that computer open and I'm doing other stuff inside of a web browser. Now, mm -hmm. when you, uh, let's say you want to, let's say the person wants to take over their own computer and they want to feel as if they are sitting in front of their actual computer. 
Well, then you can set up a system where mm -hmm. you click on it and it takes over the entire screen or multiple screens. You can also incorporate forwarding the audio system, subsystem from the local machine or oh, from wow. the remote machine. Yeah, printers, USB devices, all of those things X2Go will handle. So for all of those reasons, I find X2Go to be one of the most responsive, simple to deploy, uh, robust solutions out there for remote control on Linux. Now, here's the downside. The downside with X2Go is it is capturing that X session. So only... One, you have to choose. Either somebody can be remotely using the computer or somebody can be locally using the computer. You cannot simultaneously have both. Um, I mm. Well, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's like uh, one person will access, uh, one, for example, PC1, and that's it. And they'll, they'll just probably be on it for five minutes at the most and then log off. And, if, and then after that, they can access the, the other computer probably on it for like three or five minutes and then log off. That's what they're going to be doing. Right. So you're almost using it more like a thin mm -hmm. client than in that case. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I would definitely, definitely, definitely go with uh, with X2Go. And chat room is saying they cannot share the same... <laughs> say that five times fast. They cannot share the same session. That's what I'm saying. Um, that's, that's exactly oh, what we were saying. Okay. They, can't, they can't share is the it, same is session. It free? Is it free? Is that free? X2Go is free. Yeah, it's open source. Yeah, you just... Uh, you simply install... In fact, I'll put a link to the... Uh, to, we have a guide at AltaSpeed. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put the guide up. It it, it takes me about uh, I don't know anywhere from forty five seconds to a minute to set it up. Um, it's it's monkey see monkey do. You literally just copy and paste the commands. And if if just because nice. well just because I like taking everything way further than it has to. Let me just give you let me just get, tell you what I would do given your situation. I would buy a really beefy powerful machine. I would install CentOS. <laughs> okay. I would set up four virtual hosts, and I would allocate those resources out however you so choose. And then I would have all of those X2Go sessions remote into that those virtual machines. And here's why. You can create images on the fly, John, of each one of those virtual machines. And if any one of your if any one of your users ever says, Hey, my my, my computer stopped working, no problem. One verse command and boom, you've reset the the image back to what it was uh, as a fresh install. And additionally, what? yeah, and yeah, and also I'll put links to I'll put links for to, for that in the um, in the show notes too. How to set up a a, a virtual server? Because again, monkey see, monkey do. It's like four commands, and it'll be set up. That's awesome. Here's where the rubber meets the road, John. When you go to upgrade your that mm -hmm. server, and you spend a couple thousand dollars upgrading mm -hmm. one machine, guess what? Everybody just got a new computer because those resources are being re reallocated out. Oh, wow. Okay. So That's good to know. Yeah, that that will do. And then I'll give you one one more solution just because I'm really into virtualization yeah. and I like playing with this kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Um, there is a commercial okay. solution that will do all of this for you. It's made by a company called N Computing. And uh, what that will what that will do is you literally install the software on a running Ubuntu bot or CentOS or whatever you want to use. Uh, install it on a running Linux box, and then you buy their thin clients, which is which are a hardware capable device, and you just plug them into the network, and they will automatically discover that com that computer, that host computer, and you create accounts, and each person will get their own desktop, and of course anybody can log into any one of those uh, any their account from any one of those thin clients. So it's kind of like a commercialized wow. solution without you having to specify ahead of time how many quote unquote clients there you know computer one computer two computer three computer four it can be one machine that everybody can remote into simultaneously and then and there's no limit to it i haven't found I mean, it yet my, I, my, it will be there there might be a limit like but it'll be one computer uh, like one computer will access like 50 pc just servicing 
that. Yep. Yeah. I, I've not done it up to hmm. 50. I've done it up to 27. Um, but uh, as far as I know, there's no lim- it's probably a limitation of what your network card and the resources that the PC can handle. Um, so, but yeah, that's right, that's what right. I would do. But I've got it running in my dad's clinic. He loves it. Oh, awesome. I, uh, Noah, thank you for all your help. So thank you so much. You have a good evening. Yeah, thank you, John. We appreciate the call. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. Again, we're talking about Red Hat, and we're talking about the fact that IBM has purchased them, and there are some concerns about their culture. Now, I am not saying that this is a perfect situation, and I'm not saying that there aren't problems. I want to get to those problems. I want to have that discussion, and I invite you to join us in our interactive mumble room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Hey, guys, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello. Oh, we got a full room in here. Okay, so this is good. I'm just looking at who's in here, and we I have a lot of people that I have a lot of respect for. So, Brandon, is this Brandon from Red Hat, or are you a different brand, or formerly of Red Hat? Uh, yeah. Oh, you made it. Cool. So, uh, if you don't mind, I just want to pick your brain for a second. What were your thoughts when this broke? Good thing or bad thing? Uh, at first it was bad, and then I started reading uh, um, more, and I was fine. I really all, all I want to say is like as long as uh, um, uh, what what's in the press release actually happens, I think it's going to be fine. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you, and thanks for the insight. I really appreciate it. Obviously, Mumble Room, you guys chime in as needed. Um, I, I, I want to pick uh, Rotten Corpse. I want to pick your brain a little bit about this. I see Warhead SE is in here. Warhead, did you like my thin client answer? Yeah, since I was coaching you on from the IRC, yes. Yeah. About that, I had arrived to that solution before you had arrived at that solution, my friend. Yeah, no, I'm aware of that. Um, remember, I used to work for a company that made thin clients that you purchased. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I thought this I conversation was going. I you. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's why I thought you were gonna. That's where I thought you were gonna go. So, uh, do you want to give a plug? Not so much. Maybe not. Mm, not so much. Okay. Nope. No worries. I'll uh, do it. So, um, but yeah, the what did you guys think as a community, as a collective? Maybe I'll start with you, Rotten Corpse. What was your thoughts? Good thing or bad thing? Um, I, you know, jury's still out. I, I don't have a an opinion whether it's good or bad. I just think that it's it's very interesting, and I think IBM of all the companies that could have done it is probably the least uh, bothersome because of their commitment to open source over the course of many years. I mean, not not as much as Red Hat has, of course, but they have done a lot of stuff. Like they did that Power Linux port and a bunch of stuff. Eric, the IT guy, what's your thoughts? Well, it's been a rough couple of days, if I want to be honest. When when the news broke, I was crushed. I mean, I just I saw I saw a future where um, where Microsoft then buys Canonical and the open source community collapses and and just a pile of smoke. Um, but in in reading more and talking to folks that work for Red Hat and and people that have worked for Red Hat, um, I'm really hoping for a future where. Uh, maybe IBM adopts more of Red Hat's culture and more of their approaches and, and their their involvement with the community, and, and almost almost like a Red Hat taking over IBM from the inside. Uh, but in in reality, I, I kind of feel like our, our best our best option is probably the the best outcome rather would be that. Uh, Red Hat continues to be an independent subsidiary, like like the uh, like the press releases have talked about. I mean, uh, the the example that uh, that I've heard is that uh, you know you wouldn't even now you wouldn't realize that Microsoft owns uh, LinkedIn. 
right. uh, because there's not Microsoft logos all over the place. So, I mean, if, if IBM is, is going to let Red Hat continue to do its thing and, and take the best of Red Hat and the best of IBM um, and continue to expand this this hybrid cloud market, which with, which both companies were, were working towards, uh, I think we, we could uh, we could be in for some some really, uh, really impressive things over the next few years. I'm inclined to agree. I'm inclined to agree with you. And the other thing that occurs to me is if you like what Red Hat is doing and you don't like what some other company is doing, would you not want to make sure that all of the, you can get as many people from the company that you like what they're doing into the company that you don't like what they're doing so that the company that has the values that you do appreciate can be influenced on those which you don't appreciate. I've never understood. I've never quite understood. I, I I guess part of what it is is just this natural human desire to always assume the worst, right? And I always tell my employees when we're bidding out a project, or when we're taking on something very new, I always challenge them and I say, imagine what could happen if everything goes right. Just imagine the possibilities if all of this goes right. And I'll be the first to admit it never does because, like I said, there are always roadblocks. But we always tend to let our imaginations get away with, from us in the worst way possible, and we don't ever concentrate on the best things possible. What if, and I admit to you that this is a little pie in the sky, but not really if you look at the math, what happens if we just went from a few billion dollar open source company to a multi-billion dollar open source company and Red Hat thanks to IBM and their pocketbooks and their platform ends up pushing open source into everywhere. I mean, then what are we going to look back and say, well, that was a bad decision. Red Hat shouldn't have done that or Microsoft or uh, IBM should not have purchased Red Hat. It's a mutually beneficial decision. Is it not? Very could be. I think that there's, there's also be to consider the fact that Red Hat has a, a that culture they have and the uh, requirements that they have for being a part of there. Then it's possible you could say that uh, they IBM would have to have like a, an agreement with Red Hat so that nothing changes for Red Hat. So like I would be shocked if Red Hat were willing to do it without at least some kind of um, you know stipulation saying they don't lose any control of what they do. One of the things I've always respected about Jim Whitehurst is he wrote in his book, which I've read multiple times, how he came from Delta Airlines, and in Delta Airlines everything was a top-down approach. The top showed the bottom how to work. And he said, I remember walking into Red Hat and thinking, <laughs> these people in there, everybody has opinions and open source and no intellectual property. <laughs> I'll show them. And that lasted days before the culture of Red Hat took over because you cannot help but be inspired by these people. You cannot help but be motivated by these people and you cannot help but, are, but notice that their model works better. Their community model works better than virtually any other business model. And if you set foot inside of Red Hat or you work with these people, you quickly find out how in the world do you find these people and how in the world do you get them to work so hard? And the answer is very simple. Red Hat, it's well known. Everybody I've ever talked to Red Hat, I ask, I say, what's the secret to getting hired? And they all give me the exact same answer. You know what the secret to getting hired is at Red Hat? Do really good work that matters to the community and somebody from Red Hat will come along and say, hi there, see you doing that great work right there. We'll give you $150,000 a year to keep doing what you're doing. That way you don't have to worry about feeding your family because the work that you're doing is very beneficial to the community and we appreciate it and it helps our business model and it helps our customers and it helps our partners. 
Now, if that's the model and we acknowledge that that's a good model and we acknowledge that that model works, why is it today on October 31st, is everybody so concerned about IBM implementing the exact same model that has a proven track track history? Instead of trying to reinvent Linux, instead of trying to buy up a Linux and brand it as their own, what is wrong with going to the virtually undisputed leader in the Linux and, 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 and cloud market share and taking these people and saying, you're doing really good work. We want to give you massive amounts of money so that we can take your work and push it to higher levels and push it further. I don't see the problem with that. Again, one 450 noah that's 855-450-6624. Here's something else to consider. I want us all for a moment to think about what it is that Red Hat sells. What is it that makes Red Hat valuable? Because remember this, Red Hat does not have any proprietary, I shouldn't say any, but they don't make their money off of proprietary software. They don't have intellectual rights. The company of Red Hat has almost nothing. The only value in Red Hat is their culture. The value in Red Hat is the fact that their developers, that the people that work for Red Hat are highly motivated individuals that deeply care about the projects that they work for. You cannot buy that. No amount of money will purchase enthusiasm. No amount of money will purchase loyalty. That is something that has to exist naturally. So it is a foolish thought to think that IBM can just wake up and waltz in and say, hey, Red Hat, we're going to give you 30 plus billion dollars and all we want is your community because that's all you have to offer because you don't own anything anything else we could just take and fork and then after they spend billions tens of billions of dollars to acquire that say now we're going to stomp out your culture and we're going to go back to your products and your part it, it, it logically it doesn't make any sense and so that's why i essentially echo exactly what Brandon said. When I first woke up, when I first heard the news, I was a little shocked. Took a step back and went, man, this changes the landscape. Red Hat was like, they were my pillar. It was the one place I could go and I just knew open source would exist and I knew good culture would exist and a model for a small business owner, a peewee like me in Grand Forks, North Dakota, trying to do what Red Hat does, but on one one hundredth of a millionth of a scale, I looked up to them and said, that's kind of a great parallel universe. If I had hundreds of millions of dollars, that's the way I would do things. So how do I do that at a teeny tiny little scale over here in Grand Forks, North Dakota? And I was able to look to that. And so when this first hit me, I was, you know, I was a little taken aback and I went, man, this is, a, this is big and this could be really bad. And then I started to think about it and then I started to process and then I started to look around at what Red Hat meant and how they attack problems and, and how they go about things. And I came to the same conclusion that, that Brandon was talking about. Really don't think this is going to be all that bad. And I think the internet is overblowing this. And I really think that five years down the road, seven years down the road, we're going to look back and go, man, remember that time that we were so concerned that we wanted to dump tens of billions of dollars into an open source company, and now that worked? Brandon joins us back in the mumble room. Hey, Brandon. Hey, just one more comment. So, like, you know, it's, uh, yeah, if you spend 34 billion dollars on a company um and really it's essentially is the culture like i really do think that's what it is 
Um, it's a total waste uh, if you try to blow that up. Um, now it's also the engineering excellence from open source. It's also uh, that's inside of open source. That's one of the things you're you're buying is, is that engineering excellence. You can't lose that. Um, and, we'll, and then um, uh, one thing I also want to add: uh, one of IBM's biggest contributions, besides that billion dollar investment in the early two thousands was, uh, I think, and it's still an ongoing lawsuit, is a lawsuit with SCO. I mean, like squashing that was a really big deal and uh, probably saved us a lot of a lot of headache. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's great insight, Brandon. I appreciate the thoughts. I don't think that there's any way to force cyber culture to do anything. And I think this is a lesson that those that have tried have learned at some great cost. I think there are way too many people out there that go, well, I, here's what we'll do. We'll just force these guys on the internet to do this thing. And what do you find? The guys on the internet go somewhere else. So if that really was IBM's decision, fear not, because what's going to happen is all of the, the essence of Red Hat, the thing that makes Red Hat great, the personalities, the perseverance, the passion, all of that will in a matter of maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, maybe not next week, but in a matter of weeks, months, and years following this transaction, you will see all of those personalities and all of that passion leave the company, and it will pop up in some other form. And Linux will continue to be amazing and great, and it will just it'll move over somewhere else. Somebody else will grab those people. But I don't think that's happening here. I don't think IBM has any interest in doing that because it would literally be throwing billions of dollars in the toilet and IBM say what you want about them. They're not that dumb. The other thing you have to consider is I was doing some research on IBM, the company, how many employees do you guys think exist in IBM? Is I think it, it's like 300,000. Yes. 300, a little over that, like 350,000 employees in the entire uh, in the in the entire IBM company. Now, how many developers do you think actively contribute to Red Hat projects? Anybody want to guess? Maybe like five hundred or a thousand or something like that. Eight million. They have eight. Uh, what? Eight million is the number I was told. Wow. Of people that contribute actively contribute to code in Red Hat or Red Hat uh, affiliated projects. So obviously those aren't people that work directly for Red Hat, but people that contribute code. And this is what the open source community has. This is what the open source community can offer is this wide breadth of the, that one guy in the far corner of the world that is developing that tiny little, I, I don't even know, a, a web conference client thing that one guy uses so that somebody else doesn't have to use Flash. And he does it on his own on his own free time and he doesn't charge anything. And he simply volunteers because it's just a, a project that he's passionate about. And that code ultimately benefits Red Hat. That's not a number that you're ever going to find on a spreadsheet. It's not something that can be handed to shareholders, but it it absolutely is beneficial to Red Hat, the company. And today it's beneficial to IBM. And I think IBM recognizes that. I think they recognize what Red Hat was able to build. And so as I'm looking at this, I am happy for Red Hat and I'm happy that they are going to move forward. Sounds like things largely are going to stay the same for Red Hat. Sounds like people are largely going to be able to stay in the same positions, keep the same workflows, work the same way that they have, have been, keep their same offices. All of those things are going to stay the same. They're just going to have some big, they're just going to have their big brother in a street fight to come back him up if and when they need it and to shake the, shake the hands with the big dogs on the porch so that, and introduce Red Hat into those situations. Now, Michael, I wanted to, uh, to talk to you about, um, 
this new vulnerability that has popped up in systemd interestingly enough of course systemd is heavily integrated and developed by red hat so it's it's a fitting week to talk about this a little bit um talk to me a little bit about this uh, this vulnerability in systemd and uh, and and what you've been able to find about it yeah so it's a it's a vulnerability that's related to the network d uh module basically for systemd and it is related to the ipv6 so that that's that's that protocol and it's using there's a dhcp v6 uh, part of the protocol and a part of the module that has the problem and essentially if you uh, use it the correct way and you know what server to attack you could essentially do remote execution so it's it's a very bad uh, problem that they found however the actual like impact is not as bad as it is made to be made out to be because so far I've te- I've tra- I've looked through at least four different major distros and none of them use that particular module by default so if you just use the regular network network manager daemon you're not going to be affected by it at all so whether if you t- if you disable ipv6 you're not affected if you don't use this particular module you're not affected so uh, they already have a patch coming and it'll probably be in like a few days or so before all the distros are going to distribute it. But for the most part, it's probably not that much of an issue. Like because Debian, Fedora, Red Hat, Enterprise, and also Ubuntu, uh, based on my research, none of those uh, ship it by default, so they're not affected at the moment. Well, was it? Yeah, and so and they Google was the one that found it. They did their responsible disclosure, and there's already a patch available, um, and it's out there. So my understanding, I guess, was a little bit different than yours. My understanding was that it allowed essentially the ability to write outside of bounds to to outside of the memory bounds yeah yeah you can do an un, it's basically an underflow execute uh, flaw so that you can trick the system into executing stuff outside of what it's supposed to be doing oh i see and but it allows you to execute code that's uh you know pretty much any type of code and it doesn't seem to have any limits of uh, privilege so okay. it should it, it's kind of a is as far as like functionally it's pretty bad but as far as like the impact it's not as bad as it's made out to be they were able to catch it and i assume that this would be something that would have to be exposed over the internet um to ipv6 dhcp server so like your locals yeah, yeah. so it, it, yeah if you don't even have those install if you don't have those activated like if you use network d and you don't use ipv6 you're not affected there either the other thing I wanted to get your take on is, and we've reached out to System76 for comment, I've not heard back, but there is a new project that they are working on called Thelio. And the Thelio is essentially this this idea of an open source desktop. And I know you had a great rundown on this on this week in Linux. So I thought I'd give you a few moments to talk about the, the project Thelio that System76 is launching. Is it November 11th? Yeah, that's when they're doing the uh, pre-order. Oh, okay, so you can, I see. Yeah, you can sign up for the pre-order then. They're, they haven't really given a date of when it's going to ship. I expect next year, early next year. But the, we'll, we'll find out when they do the pre-order times because they, they'll usually probably tell you because they, when they do the whole, when they did the Oryx Pro, they told you when you did a pre-order when it was coming. Um, so I think it's going to be the same thing. But this is a really cool idea because they're doing an open source desktop, but they're not, they're an open source hardware desktop. And there's not like, it's really hard to do that with like like binary blobs and certain proprietary components and stuff that you kind of have to have in some cases. So what they're doing is separating the components that are proprietary uh, from the motherboard and using a secondary board and they're calling it they're calling it a daughter board. So the all, the daughter board is just for proprietary stuff and the motherboard is going to be completely open. Nice. That's very cool. Uh, so I guess oh, yeah. we'll, I guess we'll keep an eye on it. My question is: Is it too late for this? Because I feel like those that were interested in 
in truly open hardware, there there might be a small market of that, but I think those I think the market of people that really wanted high functioning hardware that ran on Linux, I think that market has passed, and it's either absorbed in System76 themselves or in products like the Dell XPS series um, and some of the others out there. I think the the there's a there's two ways to look at that, and I'd say there's a lot of people who would say yes, but I would say that there's the argument would be. Open source is getting even more popular than it has been for years because of all the different the you know vulnerabilities that are being known, the, the telemetry issues of Windows and all this other stuff that's kind of putting a better light on open source in general. So if the open source hardware was also was ready by the time that that kind of got to a peak, that might be beneficial. But I, I'd also say that the the idea of it is mainly to benefit people who um, would prefer to have open source but not necessarily require it. And there's a lot of people who would do that. So if I had the choice between open source and not, and they're basically the same price, I would just go with the open source by default. Absolutely. So one other thing I wanted to talk to you uh, about, Michael, is the brain trust that we're doing. So, um, well, I guess let's let me start. Let me start with this. So Friday night, this coming Friday, uh, if you haven't heard, we're doing a series of special episodes. Now it serves a number of different purposes. But I promise you it's going to end in a bang of a party in uh, in in Bloomington, Minnesota, in the Tamarack Chap Room. Um, Brandon, who's yeah, he's still there. Uh, he's going to be joining us, and um, we're going to have a big party. We're going to have a lot of fun. I actually um, I wasn't able to get a hold of the general manager, and I'm so I'm trying to definitively nail down um, that we actually trying to confirm 100% that we actually have space at the Tamarack Tap Room. But they have accommodated us in the past, and um, so I don't foresee it being a problem at all. Watch the Twitter feed just in case. If we've got to make a last minute change, I want you to be I want to be able to do so. But I should know on Thursday for sure. And so I'll announce it in Friday night's episode. Now, Friday night's episode is going to be fantastically cool. What we're going to do is a community night. One of the things I don't like about doing a one hour radio show is it confines me a to one hour and B there is a format and a structure that we use on the air. And so what I want to do is to be able to sit down and just talk about Linux, just have a party. I want to get some pizza. I want to have some pop. I want to sit down, kick, open up the mumble room, open up the phone lines and just talk about Linux and just have a, a virtual hangout and a party. And we're going to do that at Friday night at 9 p.m. Central. You can find more details at asknoahshow.com. Thanks to Michael Tunnell inside of the chat room and a huge thanks to Tux Digital for modifying our site and integrating our brand new spiffy calendar card. Um, and so you're able to go to asknoahshow.com and you'll be able to find out exactly when the shows are. So one of the things that, and this is my fault, it's not anybody else's fault, totally my fault. We have a calendar at Jupiter Broadcasting. Turns out um, the folks at Jupiter Broadcasting have not perfected mind reading um, as much as I have tried to school them in the art. And so it turns out if I don't open my mouth and begin communication of when I plan to do a show, then those plans don't somehow transition into the Google API calendar thing. And so we're working on the mind reading thing. But in the meantime, when I forget to do these things, uh, we're going to post them on asknoahshow.com. So you can check check it out there, and there'll be a calendar card that will let you know the latest up-to-date uh, thing because a couple of people have reached out and said, why are you doing so many shows? I wasn't aware. We announced it last week, but like I said, I didn't tell anybody else because I'm an idiot, and so it didn't get posted anywhere, and that's my fault. But the community night is going to be great. We're, again, open phones, open mumble room, and we're going to have a dedicated chat room. So make sure to join hashtag Ask Noah Show in Freenode and make sure to check out with uh, to hang out with us and party with us. Ask questions if you have them, give commentary if you have them, or if you just want to sit down and hang out, that's what we're going to do. It's going to be Friday night. And it's going to be a blast. 
I invite you to do that. Now, Saturday night, Richard Hip from the SQLite Project is going to join us, and he's going to talk to us about this code of, code of conduct controversy that has come up. We talked about it a little bit last week on the show, but it basically he wrote this code of conduct, and I think he's a very wise individual, and he's got a very unique take to code of conduct. It's a view that I don't think you've heard before here on the Ask Noah show. And so we invited him on and said, I want you to explain in your own words why you did this and how you think it's being received. Now, a lot of people have pointed out and said, hey, if you haven't seen the SQLite page, looks like they have changed their code of conduct a little bit from its original form. Why was that? Did they cave into these pressures and all those kinds of things? Well, Richard's going to come on the program and explain it. And we're happy to have him. So he's going to be there Saturday. That'll be Saturday at 9 p.m. Central. Again, all of these episodes, we will have the phone lines open. We will have Mumble Room open. And uh, we may use our new cool chat uh, room that night, too, if there's enough people in there. So make sure to check out Richard Hip. Now, uh, on Tuesday, and then there's another episode on Sunday, and that I'm not sure who the guest is. I, I don't, I'm flying solo tonight, so I'm, I'm not quite sure. But more details will come on, on Sunday night's episode. Now, Tuesday is a special day because on Tuesday... Michael, is it Tuesday? Is it Tuesday that we're doing this, or is it Monday? I'm not sure if we've actually scheduled. We're, it's currently planned for Tuesday, but we might okay. switch it. to it's Monday. It's currently planned for Tuesday, but it might get switched to Monday. This, as you can tell, I fly by the seat of my pants here. So we're going to say it's Tuesday, and we're going to do a brain trust. Now, here's the cool thing about the brain trust. The downside of the brain trust is I can't give you a definitive date right this second because we're in the process of planning it. The good news about the brain trust is once we get it nailed down, and of course we'll have that information for you at asknoahshow.com, plus we will tweet it out. We are going to invite our friends over from Destination Linux. So we're going to have all of those guys plus me. It'll be Michael Tunnell. It will be Ryan. It'll be Zeb and myself. And we're going to sit down and we are all going to answer your questions. And so my challenge to you is we're going to, I want it to be like, are you smarter than a third grader? I want you to call us and try to stump us because I submit to you that between the four of us, one, two, three, four, between the four of us, there is nobody smarter in Linux. Now, I know it's a bold claim but I think we can back it up. Your job is to prove us wrong. So stump the Linux chumps. That's on Tuesday. And I believe it's, we have an early episode on Tuesday. It's at 3 p.m. So when we find out that doesn't work, then we'll tweet out the actual time. I feel like a total unprofessional for not having that. But make sure to join us on the Brain Trust. That's going to be, that's going to be really cool. Also coming up, and these, I don't have definitive dates for when these people, but I can tell you they're going to be somewhere on Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday, because those are the last three episodes that we have. Patrick McBride. He's the senior director of patents from Red Hat. Now, when we scheduled this interview, we were not aware of the news that was going to break this week. And so obviously this kind of, I'm sure this is the last thing that Patrick McBride is probably thinking about, but we want to bring Patrick McBride on to talk about Microsoft joining the Open, open, invitation, open Invention Network and um, what that means to the broader community and how it affects us as the Linux community. So Patrick McBride will be with us as well as Jason Donafield. Jason Donafield is from WireGuard, and he's going to give us a detailed deep dive into this extremely yet simple, fast and modern VPN that utilizes state-of-the-art cryptography. So make sure to catch that episode. If you didn't hear it, I also want to give a personal plug. It may be my personal favorite episode that I have ever done, and that is the episode that we did last uh, Saturday. And it is an episode... Um, for, from the heart of our broadcast studios, the device that runs everything, that controls all the music and controls the faders and tells me what time I have to do what and the thing that fired our false start today because I clicked on the wrong button. It's a fantastic episode because we interview the 
lead developer and the creator of the Rivendell Broadcast Appliance. And this is an open source box that sells for thousands and thousands of dollars that's used in stations all over the world. And you literally take it out of the box and you plug it in and it is a broadcast studio in a box. And the thing does everything and it can talk to everything and integrate everything and automate everything. And so we interview the, 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 the creator and developer and we ask him, uh, why did you create this on Linux? Why did you open the source code up for this? Because it seems like you could be making more money. And in a very Red Hat-esque way, this was his passion. This was what he wanted to do. And then once he started doing it and he realized that it was that all of these broadcasters looked over and went, well, we're running our systems on Windows and on Mac OS and on some custom built box thing that runs some crappy proprietary operating system that nobody's ever even heard of. But this thing over here, that works really well. And the great thing about it is because it's open source, we can download it and we can install it and we can try it for ourselves. One of the things I don't like doing on this show is exemplifying technologies or bringing guests on that have technologies that are unapplicable to the entire audience, right? There are people that do really cool things with Linux at a very high level uh, that I'm friends with and that I talk to all the time. And there's a guy that I know that makes uh, very high-end uh, Linux-based switches, and his mentality is that instead of hiring a network engineer to manage the switches and a server administrator to manage the servers, why not hire a Linux expert to manage both? And so he makes these world-renowned switches. The problem is they're tens of thousands of dollars, and nobody, in, almost nobody in our community is going to be able to afford one of these to play with it. So it just doesn't seem like it's really that valuable. Uh, to, to you, the community. But this guy isn't doing that. He is making thousands of dollars worth of, of broadcast appliances, but you can go download it and play with it yourself, and he's going to give you the instructions on exactly how to do it. Probably one of the best episodes I think we've ever done. Saturday's episode, make sure to go download and check it out. Also, if you're looking for more Noah, make sure to check out Destination Linux. This is the video incarnation of a Linux, uh, I don't know, how would you just, how do you describe Linux, D Destination Linux? It's a podcast made by people who uh, have a passion for Linux and like to talk about it. It's a it's it's both audio and video, but it's more like it's a a show conversation about Linux and whether we talk about you know various conversations about topics that are currently in the news or just interesting topics we find that are you know big big things like uh, just the idea of like what distro people should use and things like that. So it's more like a casual fun. Uh, podcast the destination linux guys i have to tell you i that's so why i'm guest hosting with them I, I did it last week and i might hopefully might get a chance to do it again here pretty soon but um that's where i go for my uh casual linux entertainment because it's so laid back and those guys just have so much fun and so that's my way to kind of unplug from the world and just kind of hang out with some good friends of mine and we just kind of chat about linux so check out destination linux episode 94 a ton of really great information in there and most of all it was just a lot of fun to record and you get to hear me and who, would, who doesn't want to do that? But make sure, if nothing else, to join us at our party. That's going to be in Woodbury, Minnesota. It's the 100th episode of the Ask Noah Show. That's November 7th at 6 p.m., Woodbury, Minnesota, in the Tamarack Tap Room. We're going to have a huge party. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'll pick up the food bill. I'll pick up the drink bill. So make sure to join us. And, um, yeah, that's that's just about it. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, at Ask Noah Show. That's where you're going to get the most current, up-to-date information. I did get word. That stump, stump us is on Tuesday, 3 p.m. Central. So make sure to come to asknoahshow.com. We're going to have that set up. 
Warhead SC says, pick up my flight. No, sir, we are not going to do that. You can get the latest, like I said, following us on Twitter. Make sure to check out AskNoahShow.com. We're constantly making improvements to the website. It's also the best place to get the highest quality audio stream. We'll see you on Friday at 9 p.m. for our community hour.